cliffcentral.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for a little African analysis with uh, JJ Cornish. African analysis is brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School, taking a look at what is happening in and around the African continent. And this morning, he joins us from Pretoria. JJ Cornish, how are you? Bonjour. I'm exceedingly well, thanks. Any better, I'd have to tell the cops. <laughs> All right, JJ. So where can we begin today? There's lots to talk about, as always. Nigeria, which is um, always a focus of our attentions on the continent. Nigeria seems to um, scoop up a lot more of the attention than any other country, and for various reasons. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them absolutely terrible. Why is Nigeria in the news? Well, you know, Nigeria is the most populous country, so it would have virtually the most stories. But this mm. is dozens of people. In fact, 77 people sure. rescued from a church in Ondo State in the southwest waiting for the second coming of Christ. Well, they were told that they should be there and hang around in April and wait for this. Yeah. And they did, and they did a bit of hanging around, and nothing happened. They were told, well, it's actually been delayed now until September. And if you're smart, you behave, you be- believe and obey your heavenly beliefs and not your parents. Well, this is 26 children, 18 teenagers, 43 adults. Sure. And when the, they were re- rescued by the authorities, they looked quite bewildered. But, so, uh, you know, this is the sort of thing. It's a it, religion in uh, Nigeria, hugely important. As you know, this yeah. country is split with sort of 53.5% Islam and 45, nearly 50% Christians. And uh, the, the, there's a bit of battling between the, the religions. We had the 40 people killed in a Christian church just earlier this year. Uh, so a religion, hugely, hugely important. And we know that from... Uh, uh, pastors here and, you know, South Africans who've actually died in badly, poorly built churches in yeah. uh, Nigeria. But an interesting story here. Suddenly these people waiting, almost held captive in a church, believing that Christ would come again and, and, and choose the good from the bad and send the good to heaven, etc., etc. You know, the whole rapture thing. And and uh, that's that's going to happen in Nigeria. So if Jesus does come back, he's going to go to Nigeria first. Is that the that's the idea? Well, this is where you know when you say lots of evil is done in the name of religion, in the name of politics, in the name of nationalism. If you're in a country that believes that this is where the rapture will be, I think you've got problems in terms of you know ultra nationalism. Yeah. Well. Not to mention the fact that if Jesus does come back and he ends up in Nigeria, he could be kidnapped, could end up working in the oil fields, he could end up, uh, you know, being being taken on by Boko Haram. It's a, it's not the greatest place if Jesus does decide to come back to land. Unless, of course, he's really looking for some challenges, huh? which might be the case. I don't. I don't think I don't think Galilee was a great place for him, you know, back That's then. True. So you know, you wouldn't want him That's to come true. to a, a salubrious area of, uh, yeah. you know, up in New York State or something. It would be you know, too... he'd need to come somewhere where, yeah, it would be where too... he can show that he's too easy. He needs to exercise some of those miracles, and and God knows, uh, Nigeria could do with some miracles. All right, so but nobody's. Nobody's been uh, hurt or nobody's starved to death or any of that stuff. It's just this: these people are basically 
holding themselves hostage inside this church. And it just doesn't sound like a very sensible way to spend months and months and months of your life. Absolutely. But they've been rescued now. Whether or not they were, you know, filth for money or something, that will all come out. But uh, they, they were all sort of blinking and not wondering, wondering what the authorities were doing, rescuing from this important time of their lives. So, J.J., Tabo is uh, one of our listeners, and he says here, could you ask J.J. to confirm the story in Nigeria? And I, I'm obviously just throwing, at you, uh, throwing this at you without any, any preparation because this is Tabo's question. If you don't know, then just tell us. But um, he says, confirming the story of, uh, of a beheading of a military couple in Imo State that has something to do with the IPOB and the ESN. Now, first of all, I don't know what the IPOB or ESN is, so maybe you can help us with that. But have you heard a story of the beheading of some military couple? There was something. I, in fact, I mentioned it in in a crossing I did uh, maybe last week. There'd been a, a beheading. Mm. Uh, yes, but I'm, I, I can't go into detail without you know without uh, having someone do, doing more research. But yes, there certainly was the beheading of a military couple. Uh, uh, and and I don't think it was up in the northeast where, but I, I don't want to okay. f- speculate well, too much. But well, certainly, the, yes, it yeah, yeah. did happen. Okay, so Tabo, I'm afraid that's all we got for you now. But let's talk about Sierra Leone for a second because they have just drafted a law decriminalizing abortion. Now, you know, we talk about America and how backward we think they are in some respects and how forward thinking they are in others. There are huge differences of opinion between Americans and red states and blue states about abortion. It was a big story with Roe v. Wade being thrown out by the Supreme Court and being declared uh, a non-existent unconstitutional right. A lot of Americans still very much up in arms about that. Plenty of very unhappy and, and angry people for various reasons. But here in Africa, there are many countries where abortions are still illegal um, what, what is the situation in Sierra Leone, and how come they've decided to take this move to decriminalize abortion? One important thing in Sierra Leone is that it has one of the highest maternal mortality rates on the planet. Hmm. And the abortion law, the present abortion law, dates back to 1861. Yo. There was some law on in 2015 about uh, allowing safe abortions, but the then president, Ernest Baikoroma, he wanted to put that to a referendum. He just wasn't prepared to risk uh, putting that on the statute books, wanted a referendum, and it never happened. So the current president, Julius Made, he's very proudly told a convention on uh, women's health and so on that, that they have passed this draft legislation and that they, they will decriminalize abortion. So it's interesting to going against the grain it, uh, with, with, with the superpower. There's no oh. doubt about that. But before you say, well, that's nice to see this kind of liberalization happening in Sierra Leone, please remember that uh, male homosexuality is still illegal there. It's one of the three dozen countries in Africa that mm. uh, criminalize homosexuality and punishable by life imprisonment. Right. But female homosexuality uh, is uh, is legal, so you know there's there's contrasts and, and contradictions happening in that country, which of course was a which has had a in in the in the relatively recent past a very difficult time. Uh, you remember a lot of killing and so on there. Yeah. About well, maybe maybe it's two decades ago now, but nevertheless, yeah. I remember a Sierra Leone saying, "He killed my ma, he killed my pa." 
So I key him. <laughs> yeah. Speak very strangely. Well, I mean, that's that's yeah. like the, those vendettas that you you get in in some parts of uh, of the rest of the world. But it is interesting, like particularly on the east coast of Africa, there's still quite a lot of um, I wouldn't call it homophobia, but I'd call it like very strict anti-gay legislation and anti-gay rules, and people who preach this stuff from the pulpit and people who preach this from the from this the political stage. So we've got a long way to go um, before we. Uh, can stop pointing at other people and start pointing at ourselves and fixing our own problems on this continent. South Africa, of course, has got quite a liberal constitution by comparison with the others, right, JJ? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, a gem of a constitution, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, uh, in some of those countries, uh, in the East Coast, where you would have expected them to, to, to have more sense, mm. even when countries like Britain have said, no, not good enough, we're going to cut aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unless you, you, you when uh, Uganda at one point wanted to, uh, uh, and still there are politicians in Uganda say that they want the death penalty for right. homosexuality. Right. And Britain said, well, that's it. You know, you even think about that and, and we're going to cut aid. Then the, the leaders have said, well, who do you think you are interfering with us? Mm-hmm. No, cut it then if you have to. So they would, they would forego budgetary aid. Right. In order to maintain this, so it's a it's a it's a burning issue, you know. Yeah, and it's something people in those countries feel very strongly about. But I do think it's interesting that, like in some countries, that 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 lesbians are fine, but gay men are not. So I mean, it just shows you there's also a bit of hypocrisy going on there. I wonder what that's about. All right, let's let's look at uh, a story much more more generally, a story about the United Nations, because Libya is still. An absolute disaster, isn't it? I mean, you didn't want to. You, there are a lot of places you don't want to be, but Libya is absolutely near the top of your list on on African countries that are not really the most hospitable places to find yourself. Uh, what's going on over there? Because they've condemned the storming and the torching of the parliamentary building, Libyan parliamentary building in Tobruk. Um, is there any light at the end of the tunnel for Libya, JJ? Because since Muammar Gaddafi was deposed, famously. Um, during Barack Obama's term as president of the United States, that place has just been in constant conflagration ever since. Is there any hope? Well, I, I, I don't see it at this point. You know, and they're talking about elections, and but the, it, there's been this absolute power vacuum, and there's parts of the country that are under the separation of the country and a sort of balkanization of the country. But this one, the main uh, eastern city, Benghazi, and in Tobruk, there were massive, massive protests about the deteriorating conditions. Mm. And, you know, whatever Muammar Gaddafi, I I went to Libya uh, Mm. and and, and we interviewed Muammar Gaddafi, Um, uh, whatever he did, and and it was nasty, uh, you know, since he's killing and since he's deposing, moving by by, uh, the uh, Western powers leading it, South Africa, of course, was a member of the Security Council at the time and agreed to the no-fly zone that uh, eventually, you know, and and, and agreed to the uh, moves against Gaddafi because he was killing his own people, as it were, and then there were South African politicians who said we were led by the nose, by the mm-hmm. West on this one. And, 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 and I mean, those who argue that, uh, that we didn't know what the world didn't know what they were doing, getting rid of Gaddafi because they didn't know what would replace him. Yeah. They make good sense. You know, if you're going to get into regime change, better, you know, 
who's you're going to change the regime for. But anyway, these mobs or crowds in Benghazi and in Tobruk are complaining about the deteriorating uh, living conditions. But most importantly, and we will identify with this in in the freedom-loving People's Republic of South Africa, they are protesting about power cuts which run for 18 hours a day. Wow. Well, I mean, it's going to be another at least 10 days before ours are going to be that bad. But, you know, so we <laughs> but nevertheless, they, don't, they in don't. Benghazi and Tobruk, they, they, they march down the street saying, give our power back, give our power back. It was nothing about political power. It was about electrical power. Sure. And that's when they, they marched on the parliament and set parts of it to light. Well, uh, uh, the, the, I think the poli- no politicians inside, no, I haven't heard of any injury, but that is what the United Nations and, <laughs> and duly condemned and, and, and should have condemned because, you know, you can't simply can't have that kind of thing happen. But you can understand, we can begin to identify with the frustration of these people who cannot live a normal life and and of course, not to mention the violence and that sort of thing. Just the, the trying to live a normal life with uh, what? How how much is that? Six hours of power a day. Well, JJ, I mean, you mentioned something just now that is very controversial. A lot of people go, "Oh, well, you know, it, the world is better off without Muammar Gaddafi." And there's a good argument for that. We've all heard that argument. That argument was proffered by the U.S. administration under Obama when they decided, as Hillary Clinton said, to go in to see, to conquer. And uh, that's exactly what they did. They took out Muammar Gaddafi, although he was taken out, it's it's fair to say, by people within Libya who had him in their crosshairs for a very long time. But it's amazing how when you take out some of these strong men, the whole country falls apart under them. And for those people who would prefer order and rules, even if they're rules and order that are imposed by a terrible uh, malevolent dictator. There's something to be said for these strong men who keep things in place. I mean, Iraq is so many years later after Saddam Hussein still in flames and in constant flux and in real deterioration. Libya, same thing. There are countless other examples all over the world of just these power vacuums that are created when you take out these strong men. And it may be worth uh, a little. Uh, more than a second glance when we ta- start thinking about who we're going to take out and who we're going to remove from power, right? One of the most serious examples is the DRC. Yeah. Now, uh, our own Madiba decided that that kleptocrat Mobutu Sesseko had to go. Yep. And uh, had to go at all costs. And what it, what replaced Mobutu Sesseko, who there's no doubt was looting that country, mm-hmm. was Laurent Kabila. Yeah. Laurent Kabila, who was described by Che Guevara as a drunk and a whoremonger. And I mean, he was, a, he was an absolute disaster. Yeah. And I can remember a, a South African diplomat talking to me about this, saying exactly the, the phrase I used earlier. If you're going to change the regime, you had better know what you are going to change it for. Right. And that is why South Africa is has its face set very, very heavily against any regime change because of the lessons we learned out of the Congo and because of those lessons underlined by lessons from Libya. So uh, it is, you know, but who are you anyway to try to change the, the regime? It, 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 there's, a, there's no doubt that if somebody starts to set upon their own people, something has to be done. 
But, uh, you know, this is why, for example, the African Union red cards any country that has an unconstitutional change of government or should red card. Some notable exceptions have been made. But nevertheless, you change a country without an election, a government without an election, remove someone. You're in for a world of pain or, JJ, or a I mean, very, very big danger of one. You almost you almost said the African Union like you took it seriously for a second there. I'm I'm just, uh, <laughs> you know, that it's very sweet that you gave them any attention at all. Let me ask you this quickly, because you're always in diplomatic circles. You know, all the people in uh, foreign affairs in what in our international relations here in South Africa. What do you think South Africa's main objectives are on the continent? Let's be serious for a second and not laugh about the AU. But what are our objectives on the continent? Because in some ways, we've discussed that South Africa is a bit of a pariah. We're not really well liked by either Francophone Africa or even Anglophone Africa. A lot of them think we've got a bit of a superiority complex. Are we working hard on relations? We saw Cyril was in uh, Botswana over the last couple of days. What are we actually doing on the continent to further the interests of South Africa and to try and create some level of cooperation with other African countries who should be our closest friends and who we should be in association with when it comes to things like international uh, treaties, trade, all of this stuff. What are our foreign affairs priorities on the continent? Well, really, we want African solutions to African problems. That is one of the things, and that has become something of a of a flutter word, you know, African no. solutions to African problems. Uh, and uh, when we did have our Kozazana Dami Zuma in as the president of the uh, Commission, African Union Commission, mm-hmm. we uh, she came up with a with a plan for Africa fifty years hence. And, you know, the, this African agenda 50 years from her time. And I mean, I, I just think that is laughable for a politician to do that. I can, I can give you some ideas about what, you know, should be happening to me or my family 50 years hence, because I'm, I'm going to be away with the fairies by then. So, you know, uh, but what Africa, what South Africa is doing and, and, and it really is genuinely working very hard to make Africa more accountable to itself. Uh, to make governments more accountable. I, I have no doubt that South African diplomats are working very hard in this regard. To some extent, to some degree, even uh, making uh, their relations with Africa more important than their relations with their real uh, development partners in the West. Now, you know, that you, I, I will argue till the cows come home on that one. They will say, the most important place to be is Africa. We are Africans first and foremost. Let's get the continent going. But don't turn your back on the people who are helping you develop and helping the rest of Africa develop. But the point is, uh, you know, we want an African standby force, for example. South Africa is very strong on that. So that if something happens, we can send uh, troops in or, 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 or peacekeepers into places quickly. Well, uh, that's all very well. But in every case, when the African Union wants to do this, somebody else has to pick up the tab because the African Union doesn't have the money for right. it. And too many members of that union are not paying their contributions to the African Union. But, you know, uh, I am one of those... Uh, I'm a multilateralist, uh, inveterate multilateralist. So I'm one of those who argues for the United Nations. 
And many, many times I sit with an, with uh, counter arguments. You know, what do they get done? And and they do pr- prove to be absolutely uh, toothless in many regards. Right. Well, uh, I I but I, I take a simple line on that. I believe it is better to have them than not to have them. And I believe that of the United Nations, just as I believe it of the African Union. And we as Africans, there is a, an, 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 an inherent unity about us. You know, we believe in Africa and we are passionate about Africa, uh, maybe less so in South Africa than in other uh, well, African countries. You just look at the way we treat, we, uh, we treat foreign nationals in this country, and I don't know whether that's true. Well, I, that is, uh, you know, that is something that's so hugely embarrassing to us yeah. because look at us at the time, you know, when I was at United Nations in the middle of uh, the, the worst years of the apartheid regime, the middle of the Cold War, uh, we were you know, South Africans who fled at South Africa for political reasons, for being persecuted, were put up yep. in African yep. countries and in other countries, but mostly African countries. And there they were at great cost to themselves and also yeah. great risk because those chaps in the mirages, you know, with the small angry black moustaches would, would, would shoot over the border and bomb them and kill yeah. them. But they still protected our, our South Africans. And now we, now that we get power in our country, we, we turn on the Makwere and, and, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, with xenophobia. Yeah. No wonder that the ANC government won't call it xenophobia, just will only well, characterize it as criminality yeah. because it's too embarrassing to admit xenophobia. I want us to touch on this when you come back in a couple of days' time because Chris says, please ask JJ about the Madagascar gold smuggling incident. South Africa is currently banned from flying into Madagascar. That would be an interesting one to talk about in uh, two weeks' time. I'm going to have to say goodbye to you, though, JJ. We're out of time for this morning. Thanks again for your contribution. It's always good to hear your insights in these things. African Analysis is brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School. We're looking at what happens on the continent. Always fascinating stuff. JJ, thank you. Cliffcentral.com.